Well, today we are starting a series, uh, the book of Jude. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, it's towards the very, very end uh, of your Bibles. Uh, For those of you uh, who don't know who I am, my name is Josh. I am the student pastor uh, here at Highlands, and uh, it's great to be able to be with you from time to time. Uh, My wife and I have been married for uh, a little over seven years now, and we've been dating since... uh, High, or uh, senior year of uh, high school. And, um, you know, back when you're dating, you, uh, you know, you just go on dates and uh, you're, you're trying to, you know, find each other out. And so you're trying to find stuff to do. But um, we grew up in Ohio. And so there wasn't a lot to do. Um, not a lot of things to explore. Uh, so we would, you know, go to restaurants. Like, that's just kind of what you do. When you can't do anything, you just go and you eat, right? That's just like the normal thing. Um, so we went to a restaurant uh, in which the cuisine uh, was very much uh, well known in Ohio, and that uh, well, Ohio was well known for it, and that was sushi, um, because uh, you know uh, Ohio just says raw fish, right, um, <laughs> loud and clear. So we decided that that would be a good idea, um, and went there. So uh, you know we're like I think a little past. Uh, high school, had graduated, not really experienced sushi before. So we go and we uh, get whatever we think is the best sushi. And I remember it being just like absolutely horrible. Like uh, we were getting like, and maybe if you're a big sushi person, this will offend you. I don't know. But we're getting like eel and octopus and just like these weird things. And we're like, well, this is what sushi people do. So like you got to eat the sushi. Um, And it was just bad. But uh, I remember them bringing out the plate of sushi, and, and if you are familiar with it, uh, you'll know that you have, like, your plate, and they kind of, like, dress it up and make it look good, and then that you have the ginger um, on the side, and then you have this, uh, like, ball of, like, green stuff, right? Uh, and as we're sitting there and we're eating, uh, my wife is, like, and my girlfriend at the time, but wife now, uh, is looking at the green stuff, and she's like, she turns to me, and she she asks, "What is that?" And me wanting to look good as I'm trying to impress her, and trying to to be a connoisseur of many different cultures, uh, tell her it's it's avocado, um, <laughs> because you know why not, right? That seems like something that would be with sushi. So uh, without hesitation, I guess this shows just how much she trusts me. She takes the entire thing and eats it. Um, and if you've ever like had a glass of water or you thought you were gl- reaching for a glass of water and then you drank it and it was like Sprite and you're like, wow, that was not what I thought at all. Imagine doing that, but with an edible uh, sledgehammer, right? You just like put right in your mouth and um, she has not had sinus problems since then. She's just, she's all clear. <laughs> She's good. Um, But that one little, like, small thing, that, like, wasabi, right? Like, you taste that, and it's just like, boom. Like, you know it's there, right? It is is not secret at all, but it's just, like, so tiny. It's just, like... Like, it will get you and, and just completely change, like, the the situation that you're in, right? Um, The book of Jude is that way. It's a tiny book. It's like... The smallest book, like, it, like one of the smallest books in the Bible. And like really, like if you think about it, like who really has just like sat down to read the book of Jude? 
Like most of us, like it's an accident. As we're on our way to Revelation, like the good stuff, it's like, oh, we found ourselves in Jude. Like who cares? And then you just go to the next thing, right? But Jude is this book that actually has these like really awesome reminders for us today. It is a book that is like small, but is just, it packs a punch. There is a great amount of reminder that is extremely applicable for the church today and for the people that Jude is writing to. Now, a little bit of an overview. We're going to be going through this book over the next few weeks, but um, an overview for this morning as we're kind of setting up for the coming weeks. Jude was one of the brothers of Jesus. So uh, he was uh, the half-brother of Jesus. He was related to him. Um, And he is writing to a group of Messianic Jews that are most likely, it's kind of unknown uh, officially, but most likely this is a group of Messianic Jews in Palestine that he's writing to. Um, And the premise is essentially that false teachers had entered into this specific church and they began to spread false doctrine. So Jude ends up calling Christians to step up and, and, and to contend for the faith in the midst of these false teachers teaching the things that they are putting out uh, in front of the church. So uh, kind of as we set up, because this whole thing is written kind of as one big continual thing, as we set up for the coming weeks, I think the main idea that we would want to get out of one through four, which is kind of the purpose in writing and the overview of what's to come, the main idea that I would want us to walk away with is to contend the faith with tenacious grace. Contend the faith with tenacious grace. Now, that phrase, tenacious grace, um, could be a really, really bad band, Christian band name, right? Um, that's like probably the, like, it's kind of a cheesy phrase that I came up with. Um, but like, when you think about what Jude is writing and what he wants us to do, there is a certain amount, and we'll get into it in full, but like, there is a certain amount of grace and love and care, but a tenacity that he also wants us to have a rootedness in truth in scripture. But I'm gonna be getting ahead of myself too much. So uh, we wanna contend the faith with tenacious grace. Uh, So this word, uh, before we jump into some of the questions, what does it mean, contend? What does contend mean in our everyday life? What does Jude want us to understand about contending for the faith? The actual word means to wrestle. And it's actually the word that we get agonized from. So it's like this, like, like fighting, this wrestling, this, this, this agonizing over the faith. It's, it's like a sport word. When I was in uh, eighth grade, I, st- I decided after football season that it would be a good idea to try out for the wrestling team. Um, or I don't know if it's a team because you kind of like do it individually, but I guess you're together, right? So the wrestling team. Um, and wrestling, I don't know if it's as big out here as it is in Ohio, but like it was huge back then. And like, if you try to wrestle, like I thought it was like no big deal. Like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I, I hang out with my friends and, 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 and wrestle all the time. And we, uh, you know, we, we fight and all that. So like, well, who, who really cares? Um, just teenage boy things. Um, like, this is going to be fine. But if you wrestle for like two seconds, you're like out of breath. It is like one of the most like just grueling things, like one of the best exercises you could ever do because it's just like so contentious. There's so much that happens. And on top of that, uh, like wrestlers themselves are insane people. Like I don't like, they are obsessed with the sport. Like I remember I quit two weeks in because 
Like, I remember there was, there was students that would like get all in on it. They'd be like trying to get into these weight classes. And so they'd put on like trash bags and run around the gym to like sweat all out. And like, they would like not drink water and not eat food for like days on end. And, and uh, I remember one of my friends, he, he'd like get like diseases. Like he would have like ringworm and cauliflower ear. And he was like, yep, that's just, that's the sport. And I'm like, man, like that is not worth it, right? Like, there is nothing that you can do to convince me. And they were in eighth grade. Like, how are you doing this as like an eighth grader? It's insane. And I think like that may be extrapolating too far from what Jude is talking about. But I think in general, that's like kind of what he wants us to understand about the contending that he's calling us to. That there is like this, this like very, very intense physical thing that happens in us contending the faith, just like wrestling. And also there is like an emotion, there is a passion, there is a desire that also goes into it. Contending the faith is, is like a spiritual wrestling. It's an emotional wrestling. To contend the faith means that we're active in the church, that we're studying matters of the faith, that we're engaged in evangelism that we're obedient to the commands of scripture, no matter what culture says or what people call us to or what we feel. We have emotions that are literally attached to things that go on inside the church, the things that pop up in our Bible, things that we pray about. There are emotions that we feel and that we agonize over. And we care so much about it that we're willing to actually die for it if we're called to. Peter also reiterated this point as well. In 1 Peter 1.13, uh, he says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Not just partially, not just half-heartedly, not just a little bit, completely. Like, all in. We are not backing away. We are stepping forward into this thing, and we're doing it. We are contending. Now, you may be sitting here and you're, you're you know, kind of wrestling with this topic and you're thinking like, man, uh, that sounds great to contend for the faith and to argue for the faith or stand up and be involved in the church and all that kind of stuff. That sounds great. But like, aren't you paid for that? Aren't pastors the ones that are supposed to be doing this thing? Aren't like ministry leaders and deacons and elders and people that like, like want to do it and like are heavily invested, they're the ones that are supposed to be contending for the faith. Like professors in school know way more than I do about anything regarding the faith. So let's just like send a YouTube of them to my friends. Let me just uh, share that podcast with them. Like, I don't need to, to know more about this. Like there's other people that are well, way more trained than I am for this. But what does Jude say in verse one? When he's writing this book, what, who does he call to contend for the faith? He says, those that are called loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So it's not just a group of pastors he's writing to. It's not just ministry leaders. It's not just elders and deacons and small group leaders and Sunday school teachers. It's all of us. All of us are called to contend, to wrestle, to battle for the faith. It doesn't matter if you were saved yesterday or if you were saved 50 years or for 50 years you've been saved. It doesn't matter. All of us are called to step forward to contend for the faith. And that's the beauty of the gospel. 
that no matter where you've been or what, what, what you've been doing, you have been called into contending to being a part of the team of Christ to be able to spread his kingdom and his glory throughout all the world. And even if you fail and even if you mess up and even if you, it didn't go the way that you wanted it to go, he still loves you, he still accepts you, and he still knows you. So we try, even if we fail, because he's always there for us. There's no uh, tiered out uh, like teams in the kingdom of God. There's not like a JV team and then a varsity team of Christians, right? It's not like, well, I fit over here or I'm like on the ninth grade squad, so I'm like not really gonna get in anytime soon. No, like we're all on the same team. Doesn't matter who you are, we're all called to contend. So with that in mind, if we're all called to contend, I think that we need to know what we're being called to and, and many different questions that Jude is going to introduce to us today. So there's four questions that we want to explore this morning um, as we begin this book. The first question is this, what is the faith? What is the faith? How do we define it? What's this term? Like, how, how do we uh, kind of draw it out? What is the faith? Secondly, who are we contending the faith against? So if we are supposed to be contending and if we're wrestling and we're fighting this thing, that means we're fighting someone. So who's the person? Who's the thing? What are we doing? Third, how do we contend for the faith? What is like the posture, the position? What's the mode? How are we doing this? And lastly, why are we contending for the faith? What is the faith? Who are we contending the faith against? How do we contend for the faith? And why are we contending the faith? So first off, what is the faith? This uh, term he mentions in verse three. says, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now, that's kind of like a very big umbrella word. And as I was like preparing for the sermon, like I was just really wrestling with like, what does he mean by this term, the faith? Because faith is used all throughout church, right? And just all throughout life. Like um, you have saving faith. You have people that are like, um, have faith, brother, right? Uh, I guess people say that. Uh, but like the people will throw like around the word faith to trust and all that kind of stuff. So like, what does the word, the faith mean? Like, what does this phrase, the faith say? And I think, and this is my best uh, ability at a definition for it, um, and it's kind of wordy, but I, I hope that it kind of gets at the root of what Jude is looking for. The faith is unchanging, essential beliefs about the person and work of the one true triune God given to us through God's word. And it's kind of wordy, so let me repeat that. Uh, the faith is unchanging, essential beliefs about the person and work of the one true triune God given to us through God's word. That's the context of what Jude is talking about here in this specific text. And when Jude is talking, he's, he's talking about the, just the, the core, the primary, the essential of our faith. That in Genesis 1, if you were literally just open your Bible and go all the way back to the very first chapter of the Bible, you'll see that, that God creates the world and he makes it in beauty and perfection. Everything is good. There's a perfect system, a perfect order, perfect relationships. Everything is fine. But then in Genesis 3, humanity decides that we would want to go our own way, that we want to be able to create our own world where we're the Lord and Savior of that world and that we're ultimately gonna be able to be the ones that are established as king and ruler and authority. And so we go our own way, we do our own thing. And by doing so, it only brings death, decay and destruction to the world around us. 
Instead of having a perfect peace and order and system, we only bring about destruction. Instead of leaving us, God provides a way back to himself. He provides an avenue to be able to bring about perfect peace that we had in Genesis chapter one. And he does so in the Old Testament through his commands and his law. There's a way to be able to pursue and experience the Lord through commandments and scripture and and, in the Torah and being able to convene with him. Yet, because of our sinfulness, we will begin to see in the law that like we can't uphold it. We can't uphold these laws and commandments on our own. We need a perfect sacrifice. So God sends his son, Jesus, to live out the law perfectly, to pay the punishment that we were supposed to pay in Genesis chapter three, and then comes back to life to be able to give that back to us, to be able to give life and relationship and that perfect order and that perfect system back to humanity. And by doing so, he opens a way for every single person, no matter their race, ethnicity, background, age, to be able to experience him and to come back to a relationship with him and brand new life. And that's the essence of the gospel. One day he will come back. He will take all that have believed in him to be, to be in perfection with him forever. That's what we believe in. And from that, from that kind of broad overview, in order to better understand it and to flesh it out more, there are certain uh, doctrines and theological statements and different things that come out of God's word and the story, the grand narrative of the gospel that help us understand and communicate what God accomplished in the world and throughout the entire universe. That's why we have those doctrines. That's why we have those statements. And so the question is, like, because there's so much that we could get into, how do we know what is essential? If, if the faith is essential doctrines, according to Jude, how do we know what is essential and what is not? How do we know what we should hang on to as the core of our faith and what is not core to our faith? If we need to battle and contend for it. What are those core things? Uh, a guy that... Um, had a very helpful article and uh, a book called uh, Don't Stop Believing. Um, I don't know how he paid Journey for that, but um, he did. Uh, but uh, he has these three categories of belief. His name is Michael Whitmer. Three categories of belief that essentially allow us to see and understand the primary core doctrines of our faith. And he categorized it in three different ways. So number one, he, he places uh, what you must believe at the very top. Um, and the two things that we must believe to be able to be saved is that I am a sinner and that the Lord Jesus saves me from my sin. Um, he said that in the book of Acts, the bare minimum of what someone must know and believe to be saved was that they were a sinner and that Jesus saved them. And so that's the core. So like if you were to become a Christian today, that's the core, be able to believe, to be able to enter into relationship with the Lord, that we confess that with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Secondly, um, he has a category of things we must not reject. And he places the Trinity, the deity and humanity of Jesus, the historical truth and significance of Jesus' life, death, and uh, resurrection and return. These are things that, again, are core primary things, essential to our faith, but we must not reject. His explanation for this category is probably a lengthier discussion, and so it's kind of hard to get into, like, why does he state must not reject? What he's essentially saying is that you could be saved with believing the things that uh, he places as a must-believe category. 
but you, and you must, you must believe in these things that are in the second category. However, if you were not aware of it prior to your death or if you, uh, if you just never came to knowledge of it, it doesn't mean that you aren't saved. It just means that if you reject it upon the knowledge of it, then you are saved. Little uh, theological tangent there. That's just probably way too much. But uh, the third thing is what we should believe. And again, these are still uh, things that we would hold core and dear. And these are the perfections of God, that the Bible is God's word, that humans are made in the image of God, that the church is Christ's body, that there's a biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. He says here that the final category is important doctrines which genuine Christians may unfortunately misconstrue. He says that I think that every Christian should believe that scripture is God's word, know its story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, and know everything or something about the nature of God, what it means to be human, and what Jesus is doing through his church. However, many people have been genuine Christians without knowing or believing these things, though their ignorance or disbelief in these facts significantly diminished their Christian faith. Thus, I believe that every doctrine in, and he has a diagram for this. You can go find it online if you'd like, if you typed in his name. Um, but it's crucially important for sound Christian faith. And some are so important that we cannot even be saved without them. So these are the kind of primary core things that we would place our faith and we would label as the faith according to Jude. And the faith, he says here, was delivered to us. How was it delivered to us? Through God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, Paul says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. So essentially, you're saved. You have been brought in to the, 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 the family of God. But he says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the corner, cornerstone. So any amount of doctrine that we've received, any amount of theology, any statement or phrase that we would hold up as something as primary, core, and true is only established because it has been stated by the word of God. It has been affirmed by scripture to be something that we should hold on to and believe as a core of our faith. Also notice that he says that the faith was delivered to the saints, and he says something super crucial at the end of the sentence. He says, once for all. Why say that? Why include the fact that like it was delivered to the saints and then now it's over once for all? Because scripture and the doctrines that we hold are unchanging. That, that has been given to us and now there is no person or organization that can change our minds on these truths. No person can come out of nowhere and be like, well, hey, actually, I think the Bible should say this and then add on, you know, first Josh, whatever, you know? Um, no person can come forward and say, well, I disagree with this because culturally this is how we feel, so we should probably change this. No, once for all. We stand on the truth of scripture, no matter what our culture says, no matter what our feelings say, no matter what we think, no matter the relationships around us, the Bible stands true. Once for all, we stand upon these scriptures and we know them 
as something that we hold onto as tree. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 8, uh, 1, 8 through 9, he says, but even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the only way to life. This is why these core doctrines are so important. It's because they are the only way. They are the only truth. They lead to true life. They lead to the Lord. They lead to his goodness. They lead to his salvation. And through them, we are able to see him in a brand new way. And others are able to see, them, see him for the life that he is able to give. Now, um, you may be a skeptic in this room or like as you're like walking into this place, maybe someone was able to, to get you to come and um, you're like, man, how did I even get here? And um, how did we get to a place where uh, suddenly the preacher gets up and he has kind of like this weird mullet haircut thing and um, he's kind of a, you know, talking about wasabi and all that kind of stuff. Like a, what, what is going on? Um, and maybe you're, you're kind of like wondering just like a, a lot about Christianity and faith, but like when you think about faiths, when you think about religions, like one of the things that you get most hung up on maybe is the fact that like, man, if we just got rid of all these dogmatic doctrines and uh, these statements of faith and theology and all these different things that you're, you're talking about right here, if you were just to strip it all away, and then all the other religions did the same thing. Man, we'd, we'd be able to live a good life. We'd be able to live in peace. We'd be able to see that we're all going to the same thing, that we're all trying to pursue life. We're all trying to pursue the Lord. We're all just trying to love one another. So like, why do you have to be so stringent about your way? And why can't you just open it up and allow everyone just to be able to live in peace and in harmony? Essentially, the question that you may be wrestling with or, or wondering is, doesn't like every religion lead back to God? Doesn't it all just kind of come back to the same place? So like, why do you have to make yours so specific? And in answer to this question, um, a woman by the name of Lisa Victoria Fields with the uh, Jude 3 project, project had, um, she was on a panel uh, the other week and had made just like a really good statement on this and uh, Pastor Nate sent it to me and I just thought it was so applicable for this specific sermon. She said this when answering the question, don't all religions lead back to God? She said, we have to give religions the dignity of difference. To suggest that all religions are the same shows that you don't really know what the religion believes. Most religions don't claim to lead to God, so you're inferring a destination that they don't even hold. Of two other monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam, still while they claim to get to God, they deny the triunity of God. So they're still not getting you to the triune God that we proclaim as Christians. That's why we're dogmatic about it. We hold on to this. We believe this is truth because we believe that it leads back to the one true savior of the world and that in him there is life and that yes, there is an amount of exclusivity in the fact that we believe that this is the one true way, but all may be able to come. It is inclusive in the fact that it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are or your age or how good at your job you are or how good of a parent you are. It doesn't matter. All may be able to come. 
and that you may be able to experience life and life to the fullest in Jesus Christ and in the arms of our Lord and Savior. We believe that this is the way we hold on to these core things because we believe it leads back to Jesus Christ himself. The faith is unchanging essential beliefs about the person and work of the only triune God given to us through God's word. So the second question, who are we contending against? Look at verse four of Jude. He says, for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. And then he mentions that they're ungodly. So essentially, there had been these uh, teachers that had entered into this uh, Palestinian church, this uh, church of uh, Messianic Jews, and uh, they began to spread this false gospel. And namely, they were essentially preaching that like the law does not matter at all anymore. So once you're saved, it doesn't matter if you follow the commandments of God. It doesn't matter if you're obedient to him. Like who cares? Do whatever you want. Essentially like, when, when Paul asks in Romans 6.1, shall we sin that grace may abound? They're like, yeah, that's fine. Like, we're gonna go do it. Um, and because like we have license for anything that we wanna do. And so it was false teachers within the midst of this church in this community that were essentially spreading these lies. They were people that this church probably knew, probably became accustomed with, probably heard teach certain doctrines and certain things. And so Judah's saying, hey, watch out. They're coming in by stealth. It's not like you can just easily see like they have a sign on that says like heretic. And then they're like, okay, there's the heretic. It's someone that's coming in and that they know and they love, may have been invited into their home and, and just participated in certain uh, activities with. They know these people. And what's interesting to me is that like that's the majority of the time, that's how Satan will constantly try to fight against the core doctrines of our faith and against the gospel. It's, it's normally, usually by stealth. And typically in, in the church world, I think that we can forget that and we can get so hung up on um, the world and like what's happening outside the walls of the church, that like the rest of the world is trying to attack us and so we need to protect ourselves against the outside world. And I'm not saying that's not true. Like I'm not saying that, I, I understand concerns about media or television or social, you know, social media stuff or music and uh, maybe political stuff. There's a lot of times we can get freaked out about the liberal agenda or we can get freaked out about uh, conservative nationalism. And there's all these different concerns that we may have. And a lot of those are valid and fair to have. But we can get so hung up on that that we miss what's going on in our midst. We miss what's going on in the church. We can forget about things that are, that are happening, being taught, preached, acted out within our world because we're so f uh, focused on the outside and less focused on the inside. And if you look at Paul's letters all throughout the New Testament, rarely is he speaking against the world and most of the time he is speaking against churches who need to be recorrected or have false teachers in their midst. So who are we contending against? We're contending against People within our midst, people that are false teachers within the church that have wrong ideas about the core essential things of our faith. And that's why we need to be careful. Now, what I'm, I really do not want you to do from this sermon, one of the things that I think would be a bad application 
uh, would be to become very cynical of everyone that's sitting around you right now, right? Um, like it could get really awkward when you start teaching about this stuff and you're like, are you a heretic? Are you teaching something wrong? Are you uh, like, I don't know about this guy over here. Um, I, I think that like that can get like real bad if we begin to kind of go on this witch hunt where we're like, we got to find out who the, the heretics are in our midst. Like that's not what I think Jude is attempting to say. I think what, what Jude wants us to know is that that we can, we can have a high view. We can have a high standard for the things that are being taught and preached and, and um, talked about within our church. And we can love the church members and the elders and the pastors and the different people that are teaching within our midst. We can uphold and care for them and we can hold them to a high standard and have an awareness of what's being taught and what's being acted out within our church. Those two things aren't opposite of one another. Those two things can work together in beautiful unison if it's done the right way. So we contend, we battle against and we watch out for people that may be sharing things that are obviously egregious to the core essential doctrines of our faith and the things that we would teach and believe. So here's, this may hopefully be helpful, but here's what heresy is not as you're looking to try to recognize it in the world. Heresy is not um, a pastor who dresses differently than you or someone that's living their life and uh, maybe orients their family different than you. Um, heresy is not someone who has different secondary and tertiary beliefs than you do. And this would be a whole nother conversation, but se- essentially secondary and tertiary beliefs are other doctrines of the faith that are still substantiated by the Bible, but they're not essential. They're not primary doctrines of the faith. So they're things that we would hold to and we would believe and make us a unique community. But when you look at what's heresy and what's not heresy, it's uh, not those two things. You can study it on your own. It'd be a long, long tangent. But that's essentially, it's someone that has different secondary and tertiary beliefs than you, that's not heresy. Second, third thing, someone who has a different political opinion than you do. That's not heretical. That's opinion. Um, heresy is not a personal frustration with someone. So someone may have hurt you, or maybe you're like really annoyed with someone in the church. Maybe you don't really like your community group. Just because you don't like them doesn't mean that they're a heretic, right? Um, or maybe they're not sharing uh, bad, bad uh, truths against the core of the gospel. Those things are important to understand and know because we need to be able to have a keen eye and an awareness for when someone actually is being heretical. A heretic is someone who denies and teaches something contrary to the core issues of our faith. And that's what we need to recognize and realize. Now, one very important thing as well, and this kind of gets into the next question that we'll be exploring, but I think it's just still helpful for us all to be aware of. We need to make sure that we understand and know and we don't judge someone as a heretic based on what we think they believe or say, but what they actually believe and say. There's a difference between the two. A lot of times maybe we hear someone say something or maybe there's something like not super clear um, and, or like maybe you heard a friend in a community group say something and you're like, oh, that was weird. Like what? That, I don't understand what they meant by that at all. And instead of approaching them on it, instead of gaining clarity on it, what you do is you go to the best place that you know to argue and that's uh, to the shampoo bottles in the shower, right? And you're like, you know, uh, I can't believe you believe this because this, this, and this. And like, you're contending against 
someone that's not there. A lot of times we can build, and in various areas of our life, we can build a caricature of an individual. And then instead of actually talking to that individual or talking to um, those associated, we can begin to, to attack that caricature. And we can begin to bring that person down or we can begin to get frustrated with that individual that, that they may not even hold on to or that they may not even esteem and believe. And so we need to be careful to actually gain clarity where we need to gain clarity and that we need to, to go about this thing in a healthy way in which we begin to actually look at what they said, not what we think they said or believe. The third question And again, we kind of got into it already, but uh, how should I contend for the faith? How do we, as a community, contend for the faith? What does it look like in your everyday life? Um, In this room, there is a spectrum. And on that spectrum, uh, there are people over here that are uh, conflict avoiders, right? And like the thought of having to contend for the faith maybe approach someone on something, uh, call them out on something, have a hard conversation on something. Like you're already getting nervous. Like you're getting a little clammy. You're like, I do not want to have to do that at all whatsoever. Like I'm just going to pretend I have no issues with anyone, that I don't have a problem. Like I didn't even really hear what they said. Let's just go ahead and go around it. Like we don't really care, right? There's, there's people over there. And then there's people on the other side and for lack of a better term, um, are, are, are conflict pursuers, right? Like you were waiting for this sermon series. You knew all about the book of Jude. Like you were ready like to call out the heretics and get them out of our midst, right? Like the systematic theology book is highlighted, locked, loaded. You're bringing it, right? Like you have the podcast set up and the blog and the emails all, like it's ready, right? There's kind of like people that are on both ends of the spectrum and you probably find yourself somewhere in the middle leaning one way or the other. And so in our kind of personal nature and our personality, we drift to one side or the other. And then honestly, if we go too far on either side, it can begin begin to cause problems and issues in the community as we deal with contending for the faith. And so Jude, I believe, is going to tell us how we should contend so that we handle this thing well. And it's not always handled well. There's so many times within the church and within our community that like we mess up on this issue time and time again. But the the beautiful thing is, is that we're all sinners and that we're all able to be able to step forward to know like, man, yeah, I, I failed in that and we can admit it. But I think Jude is going to tell us how to operate in this thing. And it's in verse two. Look at verse two. He says, when he's writing this book, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's the point. When we are going to contend for the faith, the goal isn't to win an argument. The goal isn't so that we look like we were the most theologically sound or that we were able to find someone out. The goal is that mercy, peace, and love is known not just here in these walls, but it is so shown within these walls that it goes out and that the world will see that we are Christians by our love for one another. That's the point of contending for the faith, so that the gospel grace may grow. And it doesn't mean that that's weak. That doesn't mean that that's like, like oh, well, okay, that's not truly contend for the faith. No, that's, that is tenacious, to, to have to sit 
in this area, to, to have to hold on to being graceful when you're upset or you have a concern, that is having a certain amount of tenacity that our world doesn't normally have. To not fly off the handle in, in uh, aggressive behavior or anger, but instead having love and peace fill your conversation is something that I believe is kingdom-minded and gospel-filled. So we need to be a people that when we are contending for grace, we have these three things in mind. So here's my questions for you as you're thinking about, maybe there's an individual that you're like, man, I need to go have this conversation with them, or you wanna prepare yourself for this conversation. Think about these questions as you go to do so. So number one, we contend with mercy. Question that you should consider is, do I understand that this person I am contending against is in need of the same mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, the same need that I am. We're all sinners in need of grace. We all need the redeeming work of Christ on our behalf. And the goal should be able to to evangelize that person, to help them, to draw them back to the cross, to understand like, hey, you were wrong about this, but we we wanna bring you back in. We wanna show you mercy. We have all been shown mercy. There's so many dumb things that I've said. There's so many things that I've done incorrectly. We all should go in with a posture of mercy and grace to be able to give that back to another person. The second thing is that we contend with peace. And the question is, am I looking to restore a relationship? And am I looking to bring harmony to the church? Or am I looking to win an argument? The goal of all of this in contending for the faith is just to bring harmony here. That this place be uh, filled with the peace of Jesus Christ, that, that we have right relationships, that you're able to look at your brother or your sister in Christ as you enter this room and you're okay, that there's a level of peace here in harmony. The third question is that we, can, or the third statement is that we contend with love. And the question is, are the words that I'm using to confront them clear and straightforward, but also kind and pure? Again, we don't fly off the handle. We're not name calling in these contentious conversations. We're not getting overly angry. We're not, we're straightforward. We know what we wanna say. We have questions when we wanna be able to ask them, but we're pure with our words. We're not thinking up like, man, how angry I am at this person or like, I just hate them or whatever. We're not thinking up those things, but instead we are being kind and pure. And then as a practical guide, for just following steps, if you're like, man, I really wanna be able to go do this, uh, Jesus actually gives us a practical guide whenever we see someone with a fault within the walls of our church. In Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 17, he says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And it's between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Again, this goes back to like, you were able to bring them back. You were able to restore them. And then he says, uh, but if he won't listen, take one or two others with you. So bring some friends with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And then if they don't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Essentially what he's saying is like, you need to start evangelizing to them. That they may not believe those core truths and essential things that we, we hold on to. And so you need to start doing things and doing whatever you can to be able to bring them back to the faith. 
And that's how we operate in this. We're not going behind people's backs and gossiping about them or talking about like, man, how dumb are they? And, and, like, and, and gathering a bunch of people to be able to make them feel bad. But instead, we're being upfront. We're being straightforward. We are using the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to be brave and to step forward and just say, hey, we need to have a conversation. And I, I think that I wanna gain clarity here. Another thing too about contending for the faith and how we can do it in our everyday life is the best way to contend for the faith is actually to just prepare personally. I think that's probably like the, the number one way that we can contend for the faith in our everyday life. Like you may, you may be a, a mom of two. You may have like your calendar booked out, man. Like you're a business leader and, um, or man, you just have a job, right? Like you have things going on. You're like, why would I spend my free time like arguing theology with people. That just seems like a waste of my time. And I still argue that if you see something abhorrent that you should still go and have a conversation with someone, but the best way just to be able to contend, to be able to fight, to be able to practice this is just by you personally being ready for conversation. It doesn't mean that you always have to walk around and point out flaws of everybody or what you think they may be saying, but instead that you just personally work out your faith. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. And then he says, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. We need to be the first ones to be studying, to be reading up, to get our hearts ready, not so that we can like go after someone, attack them, be like, Hey, you're wrong here, but so that we may be able to see, man, where am I drifting? Where do I need to be recorrected? Where am I not believing certain truths? What do I need to grow in? How do I need to know these things? How can I be ready so that if an unbeliever or, some, or someone that, went, that, that doesn't believe the Christian faith came to me and said, hey, I have a concern or a question about this, we're able to give them a reason for that. We should be personally ready. And so here's some questions in regards to that. Am I consistently making an effort to learn and grow my depth and understanding of critical doctrine? It's not just for, again, ministry professionals or people that uh, nerd out on theology, but it's for all of us. Like we should know what we believe in. Secondly, am I aware and engaged in the things that my kids and students are learning? One of our uh, primary values here at Highlands is next generation ministry and that we wanna be able to preserve and keep the gospel, preserve and protect the gospel as we hand it down to the next generation. And so part of that is you understanding and knowing like what are they learning? What are they growing in? How are they processing all of this so that you can help them and protect these core things as it gets passed down to them? The last question is, am I able to clearly and effectively communicate basic essentials of the gospel. Like if someone were to ask you today, what's the gospel? Are you able to communicate that? That's actually probably a great starting point. And there's a, there's a great book by, the guy, uh, by a guy of the name Greg Gilbert, um, great name. Um, he has a book just called, What is the Gospel? And it's a real short book. It would help you be able to communicate that. How are you, are you able to communicate that if someone were to ask you? That's how we can contend. That's how we can begin to build this in to our life. The last question, and we'll end with this, is why should we contend for the faith? Like what's the actual purpose behind contending for the faith? In the 1400s, um, a, a man by the name of John Huss 
fought against some of the most harmful ideologies of the Catholic Church at the time. Um, he essentially was denouncing uh, some immoral and extravagant lifestyles of the clergy, and he was going after the Pope himself. And um, he also made a bold claim, and this is, again, a bold claim at the time, that, that Christ alone is the head of the church. In his book, On the Church, he defended the authority of the clergy, but claimed that God alone can forgive sins. He also claimed that no pope or bishop could establish doctrine contrary to the Bible, nor could any true Christian obey a clergyman's orders if it was plainly wrong. In 1415, John Huss was burned to the stake for not stepping away from the statements that he was making. Then arriving at the place of execution, he was asked by the empire's marshal if he would finally retract his views. Huss replied, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except for the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. Today, I will gladly die. What makes people do that? Like, within me, like, as I'm looking at that, I hope I would step forward to die for the doctrines that have been stated die for God's word that has been placed before me. Like, I want to be able to be like that. I want to have so much bravery that I'm able to step forward to say that. But honestly, internally, like, I struggle with the idea because a lot of times it can feel like, man, you're just dying for words on a paper. Like, you're dying for doctrines that are stated in some sort of classroom or, or debate. Like, you're dying for just, like, ideas, But what John Huss understood, what many other people understand, what missionaries around the world understand about when they give up their life for the sake of the gospel is that it's not about doctrine. It's not about just about words on a piece of paper. It's not about their specific argument. It's about salvation. It's about the fact that there are lives behind this doctrine. There are people that are at stake. There is salvation that is at stake. There's the glory of God that is at stake because salvation is at stake. They're not dying for just a doctrine. They're dying for salvation itself. That's why they step forward. That's why we contend. And it's not gonna, most likely for most of us, it's not going to get to that point. But man, we're not just trying to win an argument or know a bunch of theological stuff. We're trying to win souls for the sake of salvation and make an impact for all of eternity. That's why we step forward to contend for the faith. That's why we're so aware. John Piper had a statement. He said, when the faith is at stake, our salvation is at stake. If the truth is lost, salvation is lost. And I think he's right. We contend for the faith with a tenacious grace being able to step forward at any moment where we need to give defense or be ready so that salvation may be made available to everyone in our midst. Let me pray for us and we'll sing one last song. Lord, I pray that you just help us as we wrestle with a text like this, as it calls us forward to be contenders of the faith. God, I pray that you just, in areas where maybe we're not taking responsibility and we should, may you call us forward in that where maybe we've been um, too mean or judgmental or um, difficult in, the, in our world, not having a heart of peace and mercy and love. God, would you help us see that and help us just make amends in that? Help us to help those that we've hurt 
in our midst. May we have humility as we look to contend for the faith. May we see and may we be motivated by the fact that like this is not just about theological arguments, but it's about salvation and our ability to be able to have other people experience you. In your precious and holy name, amen. Please stand as we finish out.